0: My name is Bud and I'm an alcoholic and I'm real grateful to uh, be able to lead this meeting this morning. I know when Dick asked me to uh, chair this meeting I said I'd be honored and throughout the last week or so I've had offers of $100 to give up this meeting so that they could introduce our uh, speaker and uh, I said no way. Um, Without further ado, uh, I would like us to please welcome Tom W. My name is Tom, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm real glad to be here. Uh, I want to thank you for asking me and uh, making it possible to show up to uh, participate in your experience, strength, and hope. Um, It has just been a good thing to be here for me, and I'm glad to be here talking on a Sunday morning sober. Um, There may be some folks who are visiting, and there might be some folks... Who are pretty brand new. And it takes a while to figure out how AA works. I don't know if you know that, but it really does because we're an odd bunch. (laughs) And you might think that we operate like most normal organizations, but that's just not true. When when we turned 50 uh, a couple years ago, it was very exciting and New York Times wrote about us and all of the major news organizations had little stories about AA on the McNeil Lair Hour. They spent 20 minutes on us. I mean, it's, and I figure that's the, the champagne of information. And, um, it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. And they contacted our public servants in New York and they said, how many members do you have in AA? And they said, hmm. <laughs> in, in January, maybe two million. In August, maybe a million. <laughs> we don't know, um, and that really surprised the news organizations. And they said, "Well, we hear that you have some pretty famous people who've gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous—celebrities and big shots and, you know, capitalist swine." Do you do you uh, uh, do you have any names? And and the New York said, "Well, we've heard that too—that some pretty famous people have got, but we don't keep lists." We don't know who any of these people are, and and they were shocked to find out that anonymity was taken seriously, and and it's kind of funny. In most organizations uh, at at conventions, they get the really well wrapped to speak. <laughs> AA doesn't do that. Um, the tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous is we usually get people who are pretty scary to share with others. <laughs> So that others can feel so much better about their program—that's that's really how it works. So I want you to know that, you know, with 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 Earl last night it was obvious, but but with Earl and Scott and and Paula and myself and the others who've had an opportunity to share, we are not up here as role models. We are up here as warnings. Okay. Um, I I went to meetings for a while and. I know I'm different than others in so many ways, and I have the tiniest problem with authority. And if you use certain tones of voice with me, I would just as soon die than cooperate with you. It just doesn't work. Even if you're right, especially if you're right, I just kind of stiffen and uh, will hold my breath until I pass out just to show you that I can do that. And I, I was going to a couple of meetings, and the, the theme I heard a lot was, soon as they heard there were newcomers in the room like myself, they said, take what you need and leave the rest. Take what you need and leave the rest. Take what you need and leave the rest. And I needed to hear that because um, of just the way I'm wired. Uh, I, I could then take stuff that was useful and ignore stuff that didn't, seem useful. And that changes from time to time. But but I needed to know I had that freedom or I would have found it very difficult to stay here. I was sober a little bit. I got sober. Um, you know, if you're in Texas, they always give sobriety dates and they say things like um, if you don't give your sobriety date, you don't have a sobriety date. That's their, their theory. And who knows? Anyway, I I haven't had to have a drink since Gerald Ford was President of the United States and uh, that really did happen and it's in the papers if you want to look it up. Um, I my first day without a drink was the day that he was nominated for the Republican nomination for president in August of 1976, and several years after that, I had to go through the papers to find the date, because all I know is Mr. Ford was talking at the convention, and uh, I mean, it, it was my first sober memory. Uh, I think Betty had had a couple of social drinks that evening, but <laughs> but I was sober and watching, you know, and... Um, then um, it was August 18th, and um, so that's that's um, that was my first day, and and I started going to meetings. A lot of things happened. I'll talk about that a little bit. I hope this morning, but I started going to meetings, and I got sober. Uh, I was uh, going to school. I was studying theology uh, at the Jesuit School of Theology uh, in Berkeley, California. So I got sober in the People's Republic of Berkeley in 1976. <laughs> And I I don't know uh, about predestination or where you're supposed to be. All those things confuse me. But I don't know if I could have gotten sober in many other places. Uh, it was it ju- the kind of folks that hung out at meetings in Berkeley were the kind of folks I could identify with. And there weren't a lot of other places that I felt safe or I could listen to people. And And also in my experience, where you get sober is where they do it right. And a lot of us have the experience of getting sober in one place and moving somewhere else. And for almost every person I know who's had that experience, it's been a huge crisis. Because you go to the next place and they do it wrong. And you can't imagine how they stay sober. And. I know uh, I know people who have you know changed um, residences and changed parts of town or parts of the country or parts of the world, and have not been able to go to meetings again because they did it so differently. Some of us are known for rigidity. And we can't imagine people getting sober any other way. Where I got sober in the East Bay in the the Bay Area, Um, We had a lot of uh, discussion meetings and things were low key and uh, there was a, a meeting every night and you could get the meetings and it was always kind of vaguely disorganized. And the most important thing for me was we never clapped. Being cool was a very important part of our recovery program and cool people didn't clap. Yahoo's clapped and we thought they were culturally inferior and couldn't read. I was sober for over a year, and I uh, was moved. it was time to go back to work, and, and I went back to teach in Southern California, where they clap for everything, enthusiastically, and I went into a cultural shock that took me over a year to get out of. Whenever they would clap, I would just say, oh, God, I hate this. Why do they do this? Don't they know how stupid they look? And I was just full of bitterness and judgment. Um... I kept going to meetings because I had no place else to go. And I didn't like it and I thought they were jerks. The first meeting I went to, I called a former, this was, I'm sober now a year, so I'm well into my recovery. Um <laughs> uh, one of my teachers from a couple of years before was sober on the program and you know how you kind of hear that through the grapevine? Uh, well I, I heard it through the grapevine and I called him and I, I was coming down to get interviewed for a, To get to see if I could get a job sober at the school that I had been drinking at a few years before. Um, And I I called him and I said, listen, um, I hear you're a friend of Bill Wilson's. And there was a moment's pause. And he said, yeah. And I said, listen, I'm coming into town. I'm going to get a job interview. And I, I don't know anything about Southern California sober. Could you take me to a meeting? And he said, oh, I'd love to take you to a meeting. So he picked me up. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't even think I'm quite a year sober. So I'm real flexible and open-minded. And he takes me to this meeting. And it was like south of Manhattan Beach somewhere. And between Manhattan Beach and Long Beach somewhere. And they had people with cowboy hats. And they had greeters at the door, hi, glad to see you, and they had, we never did that, and they had, they clapped, and they screamed, and they talked about the book, and they laughed out loud, and they it was a riotous, extroverted, verbal celebration of sobriety. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. And I, what I did uh, was withdrew. I, I, I didn't join them. And I remember shaking a few hands, figuring this is embarrassing. And I, uh, on the road back, we we left the meeting, and I didn't run up and hug everybody and become best friends and exchange phone numbers and glad to be there. I remember driving back to the school, and uh, I was real quiet. And I, but what I heard at meetings, I heard people talk about feelings, and I heard people tell the truth out loud, and I. I to the best of my ability, I was going to try to do it. And and Dick, my my teacher friend, said, so how you doing? And I said, I'm scared to death. I'm just scared to death. And I didn't know I was scared until I heard me say it. I just thought they were jerks. But the reason I thought they were jerks was because I was scared. And I found that when I'm scared, I think like that. Uh, I will blame you for my fear at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you better change, you know. Um, so I knew that it was going to be a time of real transition, and the only way to transist is to transist. And so I moved to L.A., and I just started going to meetings to find out how they did it down there. And I got to L.A. on a Friday. I went to this huge, enthusiastic, roaring meeting Friday night, and one Saturday afternoon, and another one Saturday night that was even more of a celebration. People were so glad to be there and be sober and high, Do we have any newcomers. Um, th- this meeting I went to was a real well-lit room, which we didn't allow in Alameda County. It was a well-lit room, and they were all smoking Marlboro cigarettes and being glad. <laughs> and they asked, uh, do we have any newcomers with us tonight? I was a year sober. I was not a newcomer. And people raised their hands. There were eight or ten or fifteen hands that went up. And then they said, would you like to stand up and give us your name so we could get to know you better? And the answer is No. <laughs> Listen, I'm just, I'm surprised I'm here at all, and you want me to stand up and talk. I, I just figured, oh, I could never have gotten sober here. I just would have left the room. How do these people do it? Um, so I went to a meeting Sunday afternoon and a meeting Sunday night, and Monday I called this guy whose name I had. I, I uh, was in the seminary up in Berkeley, and I knew I was going back to L.A., and so I wrote the Cardinal Archbishop, and I said, uh, I'm going to be in your territory, and I'm sober. Uh, and I, are there any sober priests in Southern California? I don't know any. And if you could just get me the name of somebody, I'd really appreciate it. So he writes me back. What else does he have to do all day? You know, he writes me back and he said, when you get to Southern California, call Terry R. So I had Terry R's phone number. So I went to all those meetings on Monday morning. I called him and I said, I'm Tom, I'm an alcoholic. I just had my first year's birthday. I've been in L.A. since Friday, and I need a sponsor. Will you be my sponsor? Now, I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know who he voted for. (laughs) Very important question. I didn't know, you know, how he spent his time. I didn't know how he recreated. I didn't know what his sense of humor was. All I knew is, this is a sober guy. We're in the same profession, and I'd like to find... I I need a sponsor real bad. My sponsor in Berkeley was a guy younger than I. He was a Vietnam vet covered with tattoos. Um, and what we did for sponsors, sponsee, is we went to meetings together. And and he was safe for me. And I, I've always had a little trouble with the peer group. And I was always kind of anxious around other males. And I, but I found the reason I asked James W. to be my first sponsor was he didn't scare me. He was just A good guy. And on one occasion, we had an intense philosophical, theological conversation. We were on the way to a meeting and he said, do you think only Catholics can talk to God? And I said, of course not. And he said, good. (laughs) That was our conversation. And other than that, what he gave me was his presence. I, I remember calling him one night, you know, and I was nuts and I was upset and I was in crises. The reason I was is because I was starting to thaw out and I was starting to come to. And what I was having was emotions. And I hadn't had those in a long time. Thank you. And I, I was having emotions. And I called James late at night, I guess, one night, ten, eleven, twelve, one o'clock in the morning. And I said, I'm feeling all these crazy things. What's real? And he said... What step are you on? What step am I on? What are you talking about? I'm having feelings. Uh, so I, I blathered a little bit. And, and years later, we went out for lunch again. And, and we remembered those good old days. And and uh, I said, yeah, I'd call you and you'd say, what step are you on? And he said, do you know why I asked you that? And I said, no. He said, because when I called my sponsor, he would say what step are you on you know and, and and you can kind of begin the conversation and what i was on was step 1 but uh we'll talk about that more later so i called terry r and i said uh, will you be my will you be my sponsor and he said uh when did you get to la i said friday this was monday he said have you been to a meeting he said i've been to five and he said i'll be your sponsor he likes sponsoring people who are as desperate as he is um it just helps a lot and I found that over the last few years, it's just a real good experience to have someone um, to kind of keep in touch with. Um, I, I find uh, there's a lot of theories on sponsorship. There's even a pamphlet on it published by New York. I, I kind of use my sponsor as a lucky rabbit's foot. Um, I just feel safer when he's sober. Um, and um, I guess I've also used him as a midwife. You know, and and he's helped me give birth to me. He's helped me walk through some pretty scary things, and I guess I've used him um, as an uncle, you know, or an older brother, someone to run stuff by pretty regularly, and and uh, I'm just glad he's there. So, what it was like, and what happened, what it's like now. I was giving a talk a while ago at a hospital. I was a silver priest, and and my. Um, Uh, A pal of mine was the sober physician. They thought that a sober priest and a sober physician would have some credibility at a Catholic hospital. So we were talking to (laughs) nurses and people on the staff. They were going to be opening up an alcoholism, drug addiction, getting better ward at the hospital. And we were talking to the staff about the disease and about the recovery. And we talked about the twelve steps, and we talked about steps four and five, and and how it was real important to get people to do this, and you know, da 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 the basic stuff. Opened up for questions, and this lady present said, "Doctor, I noticed she didn't want to talk to me, and I resented her." She said, "Doctor, um, alcoholism is a disease." And he said, oh, yeah, it's a disease. Sure. Disease symptoms, American Medical Association, World Health Organization, American Psychiatric Association. Everybody knows this. Not everyone believes it, but everyone knows this. She said, well, if it's a disease, are there really symptoms? And we had been talking about symptoms, but she had a question, you know, and so she couldn't hear that. Um, And he said, yeah, symptoms like uh, blackouts you know you're you're that's not passing out that's blacking out uh you're still operating but you don't remember much uh most normal drinkers do not have blackouts and blackouts were a real part of my drinking story the first blackout i can remember and that's kind of tricky you know cuz if it's not on film you won't remember um, i was in the 7th or 8th grade i was uh both my folks worked, and and I worked. I, I went to a, a school not far from where we lived, and again, I've always had a little trouble with the peer group. And at lunchtime, things would be very athletic, and I was not. And uh, they would throw things and do whatever it is they do on the yard, and I always found that kind of intimidating. Uh, I was one of the bright kids, and I, I read uh, and memorized irregular German verbs. I didn't throw <laughs> baseballs, and I kind of knew that if I did try to throw a baseball, I'd throw it like a girl. And um, I was perceptive enough to see what happened to boys who threw baseballs like girls. So the way I avoided that crisis is, is I didn't play. And when lunchtime came, I got permission to go home for lunch. Avoid the crisis. And I would get on my bike and ride home and I would watch TV. And my favorite show was Life with Elizabeth with Betty White. Um... And then I would have something to eat and perhaps a drink, and then I'd go back to school. Uh, I experimented with alcohol in the seventh or eighth grade. i have been drinking earlier than that. Um, I, w- I started drinking when I was young enough to think that mixing bourbon and Hershey syrup was a good idea. <laughs> and that's pretty young, you know, that really is that... I, I would take a hit out of the bourbon bottle and uh, brisk, you know, and refreshing. And then I would go and take a hit out of the Hershey syrup can, brisk and refreshing. And I liked it. I graduated from that to cream de minthe, that green stuff. And I I can remember my folks kept the cream de mint and whatever, sweet syrupy stuff above the washing machine. And I can remember having to get up on a chair to get to it. So I'm not real old. Um, seventh or eighth grade, I remember experimenting with tequila milkshakes, uh, vanilla ice cream tequila. You would not, of course, put chocolate syrup in that. And I remember taking a, a little drink of, of the tequila and vanilla ice cream. And my response was, this is disgusting. And I drank the whole thing which is not a good sign. Um, but I, I rarely poured alcohol out. I mean, I can, you know, cigarette butts in beer just add to the integrity as far as I'm concerned. And um, So there. <laughs> Seventh or eighth grade, I'm home for lunch. I, I had a couple of drinks. Uh, I do not remember getting on the bike. I do not remember heading back to school. I do not remember the telephone pole. I do not remember the cops or the ambulance or anything else. I I come to the next day and everybody is a Twitter. Um, Was I hit by a car? Was there something wrong with the bike? Was there oil on the road? Did the telephone pole move? What could have gone wrong? What could have gone wrong? No one said, let's test his blood and urine. Because when General Eisenhower was president, It didn't occur to anybody that a 12-year-old boy would have been drinking. And if you don't look for it, you don't see it. But I could have gone into treatment then, uh, but I didn't. Um, And I guess it was just one of those mysterious things. Um, Let's see. But that's the first blackout I can remember. Had lots of them. Had lots of them. Then the doctor, Dr. Gill from Marin County, Dr. Gill said, so blackouts are a big symptom. Changes of personality are a big symptom, too. Um, you know, if you have a couple of drinks and have these rapid dramatic mood shifts, it's not a good sign. We, we call that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the program. And if you're looking for something to read that is not conference approved, may I recommend Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. It is all about us. And um, if you don't want to read the whole book, just read chapter 15, uh, the, the last chapter, I think it's the 15th chapter. It's a terrifying book. Dr. Jekyll's the good guy. He drinks this stuff. He turns into a bad guy named Mr. Hyde. And there's a tremendous battle, which one is the real person. And there is no recovery in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde wins. And... I read it when I was 15 years sober, and I found it terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I um, I not only had a, a case of Dr. Jekyll and uh, Mr. Hyde, I also had a pretty good dose of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And I would drink, and I could become dopey or grumpy or sleepy or happy. Occasionally, I would turn into Snow White, which was as... Con- <laughs> Fusing for me is for everybody else. I just didn't understand it, you know. And <laughs> The crazier I got with the drinking, because I, I never knew what would happen, I isolated more and more and more, and I just kept pretty much to myself. Um, one of the spiritual books I've read in the last few years is by uh, an English writer named Charles Dickens, and it's called A Christmas Carol, and it's all about this, a guy that needs the program real badly named Ebenezer Scrooge who has defects of character galore and he has these series of spiritual experiences and he changes his heart and becomes a different person at the end. It's quite powerful. But early in the book, like about page one and a half, um, Scrooge is being described. Wonderful adjectives, wrenching, clutching, greedy, awful, hateful, mean as a snake, Ebenezer Scrooge. And they talk about his relationships and and the image that Dickens uses is uh, he was secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. And at the end of my drinking, that was me. Secret, lots of secrets, lots of secrets. Self-contained, leave me alone, I'm fine. Uh, I don't want to interact with you. You don't want to interact with me. I can remember... Uh, smoking dope on the roof of the school I taught in in Los Angeles that was the safe place to smoke dope we we would kind of get on the roof and smoke dope and look out over Watts where I taught and uh, fa- you know be philosophical and think about things um, and say wow a lot like <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of my my uh, drinking doping buddies turned to me and he said Tom you're really hard to get to know and I can remember looking at him kind of focusing and he said, it's as if there was inside of you this great secret, which you just refused to share with everybody. And I remember I remember that the scene vividly um, and I remember smiling at him kind of knowingly, but that's all I was able to do at the time I was in my mid 20s. Um, if I could go back to that scene with what I know now, I would have told him, listen, I don't know what the secret is either. I'm as baffled by my insides as you are. It's not like I have a secret and I'm not telling you. It's not that I have a secret. I don't have a clue. I don't know what's going on. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. Whew. Uh, Gil, Dr. Gill also mentioned that uh, another sign of alcoholism was having a huge capacity to drink. And then the body chemistry changes, and you have no capacity to drink. And I sure did that. By the time I was in high school, I was a drinker, and I was known for a drinker. And I, I, uh, my voice changed late, and I was kind of slight of build, and I, I tried competing with some athletic stuff, and it was a disaster, which is no surprise to us. But I really tried. Um, but I found out that by the time I was 17 years old, I could drink guys. Three times my size under the table. These were big, burly soccer-playing fellows who began shaving in the third grade. You know. And I found I they would be out cold, and I'd still be functioning just fine. This is not a good sign. Um, but what it what it I thought it meant that my testosterone level was real high, and that if you could drink like I drank, you were clearly manly. And a number of people in our culture associate those two. You know, either you are the artist who is brilliant and drunk, uh, or you are a manly man, brilliant and drunk. And um, they're both false. They're both false. I, the, the, my capacity to drink changed rapidly. It was high in my teens. In my mid twenties, I had no capacity at all to drink and I was pretty much of a disaster. I was, um, and I needed to be secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster and I did not drink with you. I drank by myself uh, because that was the safest place for me to drink. I was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the last year and um, the speaker was talking about how alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. This takes a little bit of reflection um, because early in the evening, you don't know you're in trouble. You think you're doing just fine. You asked the gorilla out. You think the gorilla's cute. You're getting along real well. After you've been there for a while, you want to sit the next dance out and you explain it to the gorilla And the gorilla doesn't care. And you do not sit the next one out. You stay busy. And then later in the evening, the gorilla wants to tango. And you explain you don't know how. And again, the gorilla doesn't care. You find you are tangoing. Um, People who love us notice that we're dancing with the gorilla. And they get very concerned. And they break into the cage and try to get between us and the gorilla and they get their arms and legs ripped off. Which is why they have a program. And an awful lot of the Al-Anon program, I think, is summarized, stay out of the cage and let them dance. (laughs) Stay out of the cage. And you have to talk about all your feelings of fear and anger and upset because you know what's happening and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, you just get to... And stay out of the cage. If um, if you're sober today, this morning, and clean and wearing your own clothes and <laughs> bathed recently, these are all good signs. And it's a pretty good sign that the gorilla has let go of you. If the gorilla has let let go of you, Get out of the cage. And don't go back into the cage even when the gorilla starts humming your song. Because it always does. And you suddenly feel suddenly attracted. One more time, I've learned some new steps. Surely I can do it this time. No, 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 no. Um... One day, the gorilla let go and I was able to walk out of the cage. And uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. But I, a lot of people don't get out of the cage and a lot of people die of this disease and the gorilla kills a lot of folks. And, and I find that the longer I'm sober the more I regularly have to deal with feelings of anger and sadness and loss and anger and sadness and loss and powerlessness and and uh, the fact that just for today I don't have to drink or use, I consider to be a major miracle. When I know people who've been on the program and they start drinking again, uh, I remember this is a disease, you know, and it's as if they were to call me and to tell me the cancer's back or to call me and tell me you've had another stroke. You know, I mean, there's sadness and anger and upset, and I, it's not that they're drinking because they're bad and I'm sober because I'm good. It's it's just it's very mysterious to me, and I, uh, I find that I have to talk about that a lot with people I trust, and um, it's one of the reasons I started going to Al-Anon when I was around three years sober. I, I well, isn't AA enough? Well, I, I had to start going to Al-Anon because I did not want to be a sober person who was shooting people. And um, I was so angry and so hostile because of my intense relationships with other alcoholics that I needed to go somewhere on a regular basis and learn how to do some detaching so I could be present. You know, And it, it's still true. I still regularly need a good dose of Al-Anon. Um, because uh, I am, I am susceptible to a lot of bad attitudes, <laughs> day at a time. Ugh. So Gill at the hospital talked about the symptoms and so forth, and and this this person asking the question said, "Well, doctor, if somebody's showing early signs of alcoholism, can't you just sit him down and explain you're showing early signs of alcoholism? You're in grave danger." Um, Knock it off. See, Can't you get them to just say no? You know, which, if you're not an alcoholic, seems perfectly reasonable. Um, scare them. That'll do it. Well, Gill said, uh, the problem with that is it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because alcoholism is a disease that has three distinct phases. Phase one is the fun phase. This is when it's really fun. Um, this is a surprise to non-alcoholics. Non-alcoholics don't think that drinking or using is sensational. Um, they don't have the same cosmic experience that a lot of us do. I, I know a lady in Northern California, and um, she didn't drink. And I asked her, well, have you ever had alcohol? And she said, I did once, and it gave me a headache. And I said, and you stopped? <laughs> I remember trying to turn an older friend of mine on to marijuana and I um, uh, said, oh, this is really great stuff. And he smoked out of the pipe and he threw up and he never wanted to have marijuana again. And I tried to explain to him that you have to get beyond the throwing up. <laughs> and then you have a great time and they're not interested. They're not interested. I find that baffling. Um... But phase one is the fun phase. Uh, this is followed by phase two, and phase two is called fun plus problems. I mean, it's it's still fun, but we start to have problems—problems uh, problems at work, problems at home, problems with health. Pro- I mean, we start having to lie and cover up and do a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of us get married a lot and tattooed. You know. Um, I am I am personally grateful that I got sober before we started piercing everything. <laughs> I know that's a controversial issue, but I, I again, personally, I'm just grateful. I, um, fun, fun plus problems. Stage three, according to Gil, is problems. You know, the good times are gone. Never again could we recapture the great moments of the past. They were but memories. There was an insistent yearning to try it once more and have a good time. And we just couldn't get there. And and a lot of us uh, end up in the problem stage. Um, so Gil said, listen, you know, if if you, you're with someone in the early stages of alcoholism and you see it, they're having blackouts and they're having drunk driving and they're dating the gorilla, you know, and you're saying, oh, I'm so concerned, if you sit them down and say, I'm so concerned, the response is going to be this. Listen, I'm having fun. If there's anybody with a problem, it's you. When I no longer have fun, I'll stop. The premise being, of course, that soon as the gorilla sees you're unhappy, they will let you go. Which doesn't happen. gorilla likes unhappy. <laughs> Holds you tighter. Um I think step one asks a real basic question. And the question of step one is this. Are you still having any fun? And if the answer is yes, you're not going to stick around. You're not going to stick around. Uh, I people, This is not a program for people who need it. This is a program for people who want it. In my experience, the best friend I've had is pain. Because when I hurt enough, I really drop most of the bullshit. And I'm willing to follow directions for a very short window of opportunity. And I want to be able to cooperate. And that's not always possible. But pain is the thing that breaks through all the razzmatazz for me. Step one. Uh, Step one says, Noah, it's still raining. You know? Step one says... General Custer, more are coming. <laughs> step one is not a fun step. I don't know a lot of people. They look great and they're positive and happy. And you say, what step are you working? Step one, I'm grateful for it. No, 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 no. Step one says you're bleeding and on fire. <laughs> and it's worse than you know. <laughs> And if you know how bad it was, you'd be too scared to leave your room and come to a meeting, but you're in very serious trouble. Um, uh, Some alcoholics make rules. That probably doesn't happen in Honolulu or Hawaii, but it sure does in some places I go. And there's a million rules for each meeting. We do it this way, we do it that way, we do it that way, and they they get nuts if you change something. Um, And there's one meeting where I live, and, and their rule is, if there is a newcomer present... You must talk about step 1 and only step 1. And I suspect that's because they don't want to give the newcomer any hope. You know? How's your life? Miserable. Good. Next. You know, let's share. Ah, bad. I uh, I knew a lot about step 1. I'm I'm a little bit inclined to depression anyway. And I've always had a good, a good sense of doom. Um, genetically, uh, the DNA for me is we're half Irish Catholic Democrat and half Swedish Lutheran Republican. So neither one of those groups is known for whimsy. And uh, I, would, I would just kind of get into these periods of, of depression. and I, I know a lot of it was, was, you know, multiplied by my drinking, but it's, it's just kind of there in the DNA. Um, and when I got really depressed, I thought I was really understanding. I'm, I'm, I really understand now. Um, I was in college drinking a lot and read a lot. And there's a, a French existentialist writer, novelist, philosopher named Albert Camus. I loved his stuff. I read everything he wrote, even his diaries. I just thought he was so enti- insightful. And one of his, his, um, essays, he said, you know, the only, Serious philosophical question of the 20th century is why not kill yourself? And I, I, just figured, he understands. He, he gets it. This is, this is real conversation. Um, he has a, another a essay called "The Myth of Sisyphus." And uh, Sisyphus is this, this Greek mythological character. And he screws up somehow and gets punished by the gods. And his punishment is to take this huge boulder and push it up. The Hill, and the hill's very steep and far, and he push it. what he has to do is push it over the top, and it's effort and it's effort, and it's huge, and he's just doing this and doing this, and he gets right to the top of the hill and he's just about ready to push it over, and he he trips and and the boulder rolls back down to the beginning, and he has to do it all over again, and Camus says that's life. And again, I figured, at last I'm hearing someone tell the truth. I understand this. And add alcohol to that. Uh, wh- when we're talking about being doomed, I resonate. I say, oh, yes. Um, I mean, even as a kid, I found Disney optimism to be, you know, oh, give me a break, Snow White. You know, uh, doom. Let's get there. Let's talk. So, step one was not the hard step for me. It is for some. I mean, some I knew when they said powerless, unmanageable, I didn't know those words. And those words added some context that were new to my way of thinking, and I found it fresh. But it means doomed. When I got sober, I would bump into people who called themselves two-steppers, They did 1 in 12. I'm not making this up. This is true. 1 in 12. We're miserable. Join us. No? Um, So for me, the real difficulty was getting to step two. Because step two is all about hope. You know, step two says there's a way out. Step two says restored to sanity. Uh, Step two says it's different now. Even a little bit, it's different now. And, I had barriers to this that were in my brain and in my heart and in my emotions. Uh, another another guy I wrote, I read all the time. Another guy I, I read was a, uh, a fellow named Franz Kafka. And, um, uh jewish uh central european 19th and his life was a little bleak and and one of his essays he writes there is infinite hope but not for us well i couldn't have said it better myself and i remember coming to meetings knowing That you guys had a chance, but I didn't. That you, that God could deal with you. Higher power could deal with you. Would all sort out with you. You could have some kind of normal life again. I was different. I was unique. I was doomed. There is no hope for me. I am worse than you. My wiring is different than yours. I am more cynical than you are. I am more twisted than you are. By the time the magic, powerful, miraculous energy of God gets to me, there's not enough of it there to make a difference in my life because it's all been used on you. So I'm just going to be there doomed. Um, How do you get from step one to step two? Well, I didn't march from step one to step two. I didn't crawl from step one to step two. I didn't figure it out and intellectually jump from step one to step two my first meeting of alcoholics anonymous was in oakland california i was living in berkeley but i was willing to go into oakland for recovery it's about four miles if you're looking at a map um and and this enthusiastic non-clapping group of people gave me uh something to do they said go to lots of meetings don't drink in between meetings and don't use no dope Go to lots of meetings, don't drink in between meetings, don't use no dope. And that became my program for at least a year, if not two years. I mean, steps and I needed to do something. I was going to meetings, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't using. And looking back, here's what I think happened. I, by going to a lot of meetings and not drinking and not using, I surrounded myself with people like you. And the way I got carried, the way I got, got from step one to step two is I got carried from step one to step two by people like you. The higher power present in the group moved me from a place of no hope to a place with a little bit of hope, not a lot. And I find, on all honesty, I don't need a lot of hope. I just need some. You know, I need to know that the door doesn't have to be open as long as it's unlocked and I'm able to do something. I mean, I just kind of perk up enough to do the left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, breathe stuff of the program. Participate, cooperate, show up, surround myself with women and men who should be dead. I I found that your hope was contagious and i started having a little bit of hope one night in berkeley it occurred to me i was at a wednesday night meeting called the wild bunch it was all people in their mid-20s to mid-30s it still exists and they're still mid-20s to mid-30s and i went about two years ago and they were all mid-20s to mid-30s and they were all dating you know and that's kind of interesting all by itself as a little subspecies in aa um and, and they horrified me, and I, I just said, w- how can anyone... St-? But I, I needed to be there when I was mid-20s to mid-30s. And But when I went there at the age of 47, they thought I was someone's grandfather, you know, so I never went back, showed them. Um, uh, my sponsor says he's... Oh, I've never been to a bad AA meeting, he'll say, and I'll tell him, you should travel with me, I'll take you to some bad AA meetings. <laughs> Oh, God. Anyway, um, all of a sudden, I started having a little bit of hope. I was at that Wednesday night meeting, and what occurred to me, not just headwise a lot of stuff occurs to me in my head. And most of it doesn't last for long, which is a relief. But a lot of stuff goes on in my head. Um, but this also occurred in my heart and, and maybe even in my gut. It said, you know, Tom, God's grace, whatever that is, who knows, the energy, God's grace is available to anybody in this room. You're in the room. I'm part of the process. I'm part of the group. Not necessarily 100%, but a little bit. My foot's in the door. The door's open. Hooray! Maybe there's a chance. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And when I saw that, the way I thought it should work for me and you is uh first I have to sort out all the God stuff. Then I'll be restored to sanity. Now, I know a lot of God stuff. I really do in a couple of languages and a couple of traditions. None of that keeps me sober. I knew that drinking. You know? And a lot of the stuff I knew was really good stuff, but it was all theory. The experience of hope is a real different thing. Here's what started happening for me. It's not that I figured it out and then got restored to sanity. I started being restored to sanity. And then I came to believe in a power greater than myself. What does sanity look like? That's always a good topic at a meeting. Um... I, I saw this shrink uh, I've had some wonderful experience with shrinks and this one man was uh, um, he listened well and he spoke well and he asked some good questions and I needed him very badly for a period of time um, and I said to him Leonard do you think I'm normal there's evidence that I'm not um, and he looked at me with these wise Jewish eyes and he said normal is 98.6 And I said, what am I trying to say? He said, you're trying to ask, are you healthy? I said, okay, how do you you know? Am I okay? Am I normal? Am I all right? Um, I mean, some of us are so self-obsessed. No one here, of course, but the only question we have is, how am I doing? Am I okay? Am I all right? Am I getting along to people like me? I mean, me, 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 you know. How do you know? Well, Leonard said, you can spot healthy people by the way they behave. Ooh. How do healthy people behave? He said, healthy people are able to do three kinds of things. Number one, healthy people can work. Number two, healthy people can love. Number three, healthy people can play. If you know someone who can work, love, and play, you know a pretty healthy person. And I said go on. I was hoping he would use more words that I could identify with. <laughs> we spent some time talking about those things and, and like the work stuff. Um, a lot of people in our culture are identified by work, you know and I, I knew it at, at, at the bleakest part of my drinking and the awful part of my drinking, I, I should just say it out loud, it was the depression. It was just a, uh, I mean the, the sense of hopeless, doomed no way out depression. I've never had a drunk driving ticket. I mean, I there's a lot of the external stuff. It's just, I mean, jails. I've never done any of that stuff. I just lived in the world of beyond depression, you know, and I just thought that was real. And I love smoking dope and having a couple of glasses of wine and listening to Ray Charles being born to lose one more night. And I would go, yes, Ray, you know, and I... Um, my favorite, my favorite uh, album was Isaac Hayes, uh, Hot Buttered Soul, Side Two. And uh, on on Side Two, old Isaac Hayes, uh, he talks about this woman who broke his heart seven times. And he talks about each one of those times. And then he tries to get to Phoenix for the rest of the side of the album. And I would play that over and over and over again. And I thought I had a social life. Because I identified so closely with Isaac Hayes. I mean, this is I mean, its just insanity. Uh, a little depressed. So, um, what's the point? Work! Ah! Uh, a lot of us identify <laughs> with the work stuff. And during the Depression, the only time I felt alive was in front of the classroom. And I prided myself with the fact that I was an effective teacher. I taught history, European history high school kids in central Los Angeles and I did that five times a day five times a week or five five times a day five days a week that's right and I did that for three long years and then I, I left that and went to Berkeley to continue my studies and the depression multiplied by the power of five because as long as I could stay busy working I kept the demons at the door and then I went into graduate school which is kind of sleep late and you know drink cappuccino um so, my sponsor pointed out to me the difference between working and being busy. When you work, you actually get things done. Busy is just busy. And I was busy a lot. I, he had to explain this to me. Uh, You're able to work, he said. And by, I went, I got sober a year. I went back to teach. My first year back in the classroom, Sober was the hardest year of my sobriety. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I had no boundaries. I had no skin on. I was a raw nerve. Uh, And the only tool I had to use with the stresses and strains of the high school environment was sarcasm. And I used it a lot. And um, I mean, angry, uh, funny, but angry. And I would go to a billion meetings because I didn't know what else to do. And where they clapped, you know, and I'd go to more meetings. I remember asking my sponsor. I was there for six months. I didn't want to ask him too many questions. Um, I said, are there any small meetings in Southern California? And he said, go to a big book study. They're always small. <laughs> so... So I started doing that. I went to a Friday night big book study on Olympic Boulevard and there was a group of folks there. Now, I was 30 years old by this time. The women and men at this meeting, and there were maybe 15 or 20 of them, were all in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And I went to that meeting every Friday night and these became my first friends. These became my first friends in in Southern California in recovery because I was finally able to start being a friend. But more on that later. Uh, the work stuff. Uh, Terry told me that Work means you show up on time. Once you're there, you do what you've agreed to do. You finish on time. You clean up. He said, if you can do that, you can hold down a job. In fact, people will even consider you to be reliable and trustworthy. I had to write all those parts down. You really, Because, see, I'm great at showing up on time. I can do that. I can start any number of projects. Then I get bored, the phone rings, something else happens, and I put the project down. And it might be months before I notice something's wrong. That's a real pattern for me, and it's something I have to watch regularly. I do a lot of yard work. It's where I regularly connect with the higher power at my house and um, out in the yard, digging things, planting things, working with living things. And it's real easy to cut stuff down. And I have to force myself to pick it up, take it away, you know, get the dump truck, haul it away. Well, I'll do it next week. No, you won't. Now. It's hard. Uh, loving. Loving is a big part of of, of, of being alive. And, and just to say out loud, because um, I need to hear this, um, there is a lot more to loving than getting laid. You know, some of us have been sexual with people we would not have coffee with, you know, (laughs) and what I had to learn was this whole world of relationships, uh, being friends, it has to do an awful lot, not with feelings. But with my behavior, how do I interact with other persons? How do I treat other persons, even if I'll never see them again? Um, The people at at Lucky Market, how do I interact with people? Um, I found, and this is my own, again, way of, of proceeding. If I'll never see you again, I can be pretty good to you. If I'm related to you, I can be a real jerk. And I didn't know that pattern until it was pointed out to me by one of the guys I lived with. He said, Tom, you're great with strangers. I hate hearing you talk about your family. Really? Uh, See, I thought I was just being funny. No, 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 no. There's some work to do there. And I had to do some work there. I had years of resentments and hostilities and bitterness and sarcasm to work out and... um, Whew, I'm just glad that I've had the time to do this. I, I didn't speak to my father for years for any number of good reasons. And um, it was and he he is not a chatty guy. I mean, it's not like he was initiating the conversation and I wasn't answering the phone. I mean, it, we, we just didn't talk. And uh, last year um, he was diagnosed uh, very ill and he was 91. And it was, you know, I, I over the last 10 years, I've done some amends and I've done some repair work there. And when he uh, was as sick as he was, uh, I I spent the nights with him, and I was able to be there pretty regularly, and I found um, I could do simple things like a feed him, and I and and I wasn't I, the first day I I got there in the hospital I was really agitated I was in crises, and in crises I kind of go back to more primitive forms. Um, and I I was—I didn't know what to do. He's there, and my mom's there, and my brother's there who's nuts. I mean, he was nuts that day. He's usually the rock of Gibraltar, but it was a new thing going on, and no one was being terribly grounded, we might say. And I found myself highly agitated. I was not helping anything. I was adding to the confusion. And And you know why? It's because what I was saying is, my father is dying. My father is dying. And I was running that tape. And I finally, it took me two days, but I finally said, wait a minute. Don't think... My father's dying. That's not healthy. Instead, think, there's this old sick guy who's dying. Tom, you've been with sick people a lot. Treat him like you'd treat an old sick guy, and I could be with him. And all of a sudden, all the tension went out of the room, and I could spend time with him. Um, the day he was diagnosed as terminal, um, my mom has a couple of control issues, and uh, lunch was served, and he wanted to eat his ice cream first, and she wouldn't let him because you eat soup first, you know, in America. And I wanted to scream at the top of my voice, He's dying! Give him the ice cream! But um, I go to al And I realized that I was highly uncomfortable, and I knew what I wanted to do, and instead I said, I'll be back in a few minutes, and I got up, and I went out, and I started walking down the hall. It took 25 minutes of calm walking, but then it occurred to me, they worked this deal out years ago. You know, they have their own rhythm, and I'm not here to interfere or make it better. They're, they're cooperating, and I went back in, and, but when when we were alone, uh, I'd get them ice cream. He died, and 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 I, I presided at the funeral, and um, it was it was a way of paying respect, uh, which I could not have done ten years ago, which I know I couldn't have done twenty years ago. So I'm real grateful that there's been some stuff that's gone on there. But the loving, the loving is an important thing. Can I act in a loving way even when I'm not having a good day? Is my question. Uh, if I'm if I'm um, well-rested, and I've eaten intelligently, and I've exercised some. I can love unconditionally. If I'm a little cranky, I don't love unconditionally. I think that you need to improve. (laughs) Work, love, play, play. I didn't know anything about play other than recreational drugs and recreational vehicles, you know. And and to learn how to have some lightness of heart and some enjoyment in life, has been an important part of recovery for me and I did not value that the value I've always had and again it's kind of genetic um, good people work better people work harder. And whenever I felt guilty or stupid or insecure or inadequate, I just worked harder. Or rather, I got busier. That's what I would do. And that would kind of mitigate the feelings. And I found out that uh, I was talking to the Leonard, you know, the shrink. And I said, uh, he said, what do you do for fun? And I I felt my moral superiority rise. And I said, I don't do things for fun. I'm a serious person. (laughs) The world's burning down, you know, and some of us have to make a difference. And he said, well, where, where do, you, do you find any enjoyment? I said, I like meetings very much. Meetings are good for me. In fact, lots of times we laugh very hard at meetings. <laughs> and he said, Tom, if you don't learn how to play and lighten up, you'll never get well. And I said, how do you even start to learn something like that? Are there books to read on the subject? My first choice. I'll read all those books. Uh, His suggestion was that I look around to see what people do for fun and then try it. Try it a lot. Not once. Oh, I didn't like it. Try it once. No, no, no. Most of us don't like anything the first time except alcohol and drugs. He said, try it half a dozen or ten times and then you'll know if you like it or not. And, And I started having to learn how to lighten up and participate in being alive. Working, loving, playing. Step two. Over time, and I'm not a quick person in recovery, I'm real slow. Over time, within a year or two or three, I noticed that I was back at work. It was very difficult and stressful, but I was back at work. I was learning how to do it. I was making friends, and I was learning how to lighten up a little bit. And that's when I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself in my life. And if that power is present... um, can I trust that power to help me walk through the craziness of the next years? Step three. Um, I, I don't do a lot of intense. I mean, I keep step three real simple. Turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. I, I was reading a 18th century fellow talking about turning it over and French guy. And he said, if you have trouble turning over everything, just turn over now. I can do that, and I do. I regularly turn over now, and I do that throughout the day. I try to take moments like sunrise, which I don't regularly see, or sunset, which I frequently see, and take just a couple of moments, and while I'm there, turn it over. Turn over now. Turn over all of it now. But I turn it over and take it back, and I turn it over. That's right. And when I notice I've taken it back, I turn it over. It's kind of a statement of policy, you know. I try to cooperate with this stuff. I I don't think, and this is a personal opinion and you can sure disagree with me, but I don't think that the program works when we work it. There's just too much, I'm doing it all, uh, in my mind with, with those words. Uh, instead, I find the program works if I let it. And a huge amount of recovery for me is learning how to cooperate with the program. Not fixing it, not running it, not marching it, not doing it, but just cooperating with it. Sometimes I'm at a meeting, and the way I hear people talk about recovery, it's as if they're at Gold's Gym, you know, lifting things, pulling things, yanking things, becoming strong like ox. And I, it's not my experience, uh, when I relax enough to cooperate Things change remarkably well. The Chinese talk about the Tao. And the Tao is basically the flow of things. And and to learn how to move with the flow of things makes all the difference in the world for me. So I I find when I'm going to meetings and when I'm cooperating and returning phone calls and turning it over and have some kind of ongoing prayer and meditation in my life, it flows. And when I don't do that, it doesn't flow. And I can become a little testy. Um, what else do I know? And then we can all go home. Um, I, I started this earlier in, in my talk this morning, but I, I was uh, newly sober and I went to uh, the El Cerrito Fellowship, which has meetings all day long. And I asked this old timer, um, I think he had six months. I said, actually, he didn't yet he about 30 years. I said, how do you know you're alcoholic?" I mean, maybe I'm not alcoholic, maybe I'm just crazy. And he looked at me, and it's not what he said that helped, which did, but but the way he said it helped. He didn't tell me how I would know I was an alcoholic. Tom, here's what you'll know. He didn't use that tone of voice. Instead, he told me how he knew he was an alcoholic. See, instead of telling me what my experience should be, which doesn't work he told me what his experience was which meant i could identify and he said he knew he was an alcoholic because he had no way of guaranteeing his behavior after his first drink i said what do you mean he said well there are times i could drink a lot and nothing would happen nothing would happen you know simple evening at home you know um I had a lot of those. I would drink a lot. I'd get back to my own room, uh, get to bed, wake up in the morning, no vomit, no pee. Success, you know? Other times, he said he would just drink a little bit and anything could happen. Now, that's my story, too. Uh, I I never knew which one it would be. Is it going to be a smooth evening or are we in for a bumpy ride? I never knew. There were times I would drink and I was charming. There were times I would drink and I was scary. A lot of times I did lots of drunk driving for which I was never stopped, but that was as, as one of the speakers from past generations said, that was a matter of seconds and inches. You know, I could have been a statistic and I could have caused a lot of other people to be a statistic five days a week for 20 years. So um, So I came to the conclusion that I was alcoholic, and what I needed to do was surround myself with women and men who could give me the gift of hope so that a day at a time I could have a life. There's been lots of changes, there have been lots of things going on. Some of it's been fine, some of it's been just awful. One of the, the women in the East Bay, her name's Bobette, she says, uh, when you get sober, you feel better, you feel everything better, and, and that's true. Um, I I find that it's real hard to be here, that I really need something besides physical sobriety to give me the tools to use to have a life. And and I'll, let me just mention a couple of the tools I use and then um, we can end it all. But I, I go to meetings, I find sometimes I cut way back on meetings because I get busy and crazy and lazy and suddenly love votes on and I get interested, you know, um, and I, I find when I cut way back on meetings, it's not that I'm so much in the danger of drinking. But the quality of my life changes. I am less sensitive, I am more reactive, and I'm regularly more hostile. And I have to watch that. Um, But going to meetings. Returning phone calls. I don't always like to do that. Uh, But I I, I phone people and I return the phone call. I also screen calls when I'm there because I don't always think it's God on the other end. and and I'll, I'll go out maybe to something at night to a meeting or something and I'll come back at 11 o'clock and the machine will be blinking, you know, and there'll be 5 or 8 or 12 or 75 telephone messages. I give myself permission to not listen to those at 11 o'clock at night. Because right now, um, usually by 11 o'clock, I'm done. I don't have any energy and I don't have any hope to give anybody I need to get to bed with the cats, you know, and tomorrow we'll try something else and I can return the phone calls tomorrow because I I just I'm real aware having turned 50 that there are limitations that are real and I've got to respect them. And so a lot of times I turn all of the names on the machine over to God's care and I go to bed. Uh, and there are some people who are angry at me the next day, but they've been angry at me for years. So I just figure, good for you, you know. Um, I tell them you're dealing with someone with severe limitations, you know, so let's not pretend. Uh, the fact is we're talking now. I use the phone. I sponsor some people and I, you know, I, I don't know what they should do with their lives. I don't know if they should move in or move out or do this or do that. I sponsored a guy for a while named Charlie and Charlie ran the garage that I always brought my car to and this is even when he was drinking. I asked around the fellowship, is there an honest garage? And they said, oh, Charlie's garage. So I brought my car there. A lot of other sober people did. Then one day Charlie showed up at a meeting and he, you know, with about 19 minutes of sobriety and, um, Charlie found that half the room were his clients and it really threw him and he was all concerned about what will we say and we were just glad to see him. And he asked me to be his sponsor and, I was so happy bringing my car to him and it felt so good. And then two or three or four years later, he told me that he hated running a garage. He started doing garage work when he was a kid uh, in the backyard, you know, and it kind of grew into Charlie's garage and he wanted to sell the garage and do something else. And he wanted to go to computer school and wear a tie and do a different job for the next years. And my uh, only thinking of others, you know, my first thought was, where will I take my car? So I told him not to do anything rash, you know, and pray about this. And let's see what God is telling you. And, uh, and he sold his garage and has stayed sober and done a lot of different things. And God got another mechanic sober, and uh, uh, which is a miracle, as you know. And they um, now we take our car to David. And um, uh, David believes that if he cheats a customer, he'll get drunk. And I don't do anything to tell him different. I also have a sponsor. My sponsor is uh, more in need of meetings than anybody I know. Um, last year, he uh, jumped out of a perfectly good plane. He was 25 years sober and almost 60 years old and a monsignor, and he decided that he needed to jump out of a plane. And uh, he didn't tell us about it until he did it, but then he made us all watch this film, So clearly, he's not dealing with a lot of personal mental health, but he's familiar with the theory, and we can talk about it. I, I, um, I find that he uh, shares his experience and his strength and his hope, and and I keep in regular contact by phone. And when I'm I'm with, in Los Angeles, I always go see him and give him another chance to buy me lunch, which he hasn't done yet. But I always give him another chance to buy me lunch, and it's day at a time. And it's a day at a time, and it's day at a time. I think of drinking. You need to know this. I know people who got sober and haven't had the thought of a drink in 50 years, and I'm very happy for them. I think of drinking all the time. Um, well, what do you do? I don't drink today. I give myself permission to drink tomorrow. Uh, I give myself permission... To run away from home tomorrow. I give myself permission to rob banks tomorrow. I give myself permission to even scores tomorrow. Today I don't do it. I try to be very present today and cooperate with the gift of sobriety and recovery as it's given to me just for today. And I find that gives me a real full plate I have drinking dreams I wish I didn't they come I don't know what to do with them I was having them for a while and I thought this means I'm a bad member you know this means I should be working on a step or something you know doing spiritual exercises and um, I finally ran it by my sponsor the hopeless alcoholic in Los Angeles and I said um, I didn't want to tell him that I was having drinking dreams but I said what happens if you know someone who may be having drinking dreams And he said, have you had the one yet? (laughs) Notice he shared experience with me. He didn't get theoretical. And he talked about in the dream, you know, you've been going to meetings for years. But in the dream, you are sitting alone in your room, secret, self-contained, solitary as an oyster, drinking all by yourself. And you've been doing that for years, too. Have you had that dream yet? And I hadn't. And I thought it was a dream full of perversion and mendacity. You know, this is a sick man who has a dream like that. And um six months later, I had that dream, of course. Uh, so I said, what does it mean, these drinking dreams? And he says, well, drinking dreams mean a couple of things. Number one, for many of us, it means that our drinking had become a nightmare. Number two, people who have drinking dreams don't get drunk. He said, do you know any drinking people who have drinking dreams? You know? No. Only sober people get them. It's very bizarre. Um, so it's kind of cold comfort. Um, but when I have them, I wake up. I, I was ten years sober. I woke up from an incredibly vivid dream, and I knew I had blown ten years. And it was not until my second cup of coffee before I realized I I didn't go out last night. You know? And I was real grateful that I hadn't gone out last night. Anyway, I'm also real grateful that I'm here. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that... Um, there are rooms like these all over the world, where people like us can gather safely. I was in last story. I was in. Uh, if that's those of you who have bathroom needs, I want you to know that soon you can meet your needs. Um, I was in Bangkok a couple of years ago uh, doing some stuff, and on there's a little board over by the AA bulletin board at the at the Alano Club in Bangkok, and it just says when you're in Cambodia. In Cambodia, the sober people stop at Burt's Books. Well, I figured that was my higher power speaking to me. So I needed to find Cambodia, and I needed to find Bert's Books. And I did that. And bert has been sober for a while, and great big bear-shaped guy, and his wife's Cambodian. And um, bert has been in there for about five years, and he runs a bookshop and guest house. For $5 a night, you get a bed and a fan and a mosquito net, which is real nice. You're real glad for it. And you get to hang out with sober people who are doing things there. And I went and found here I am as far as you can be from where I was when I got sober in Berkeley. I'm no longer secret. I know I'm not self-contained and I'm rarely as solitary as an oyster. I can even meet a man like Bert uh, and we're from very different backgrounds. We make a connection. A group of us can gather around the table in Phnom Penh and talk about recovery and life and gratitude and service and know that we are where we're supposed to be. And I've learned those things and had those experiences here. And for that, I'm real grateful. Thanks.